thank you for your prayers for Mary Lane, uh, Anna, and our family. Um, uh, so, and Dave Bradshaw asked me in the parking lot, you surviving? I'm like, that's a great way to, uh, great way to describe it is surviving. I'm about to get voted off the island, I think, but um, we're doing uh, really, really, really well. Daniel, can you pull up the picture of Anna? So people are like, I want to see a picture of her, so let's just get this out of the way now. I know we're here to make much of Jesus, and this is not about my daughter, but, you know, we're just going to take a brief second, and I'll... Uh, it's in the worship slides uh, at the very beginning, Daniel, thanks. I, I, I'm, I'm throwing this at him right now. Welcome to Leewood Baptist Church. We're glad you're here. <laughs> there she is right there. Uh, so she was born on Thursday at 9.38, and she weighed 8 pounds, 6 ounces, bigger than her brothers, both of her br- brothers, and she was uh, just over 20 inches long. And so uh, we are so blessed, uh, God's grace in our lives, and we're just so thankful uh, for for that, I mean, it, I, to to me, um, there's lots of evidences of the existence of God. We've even talked a little bit about that through this series of what we believe. But when a child is born, to me, there's like there's a God. There is a God, and He is Creator of all. And um, so we're just so grateful uh, for our li- for what God's done in our life, and so we're thankful for that. A little bit sleep deprived, but that's par for the course. I haven't really slept in almost five years now, having kids. So uh, a little bit used to it. I woke up this morning, and this is the honest truth. Normally, when I wake up on Sunday mornings, I know it's Sunday, and I'm fired up and ready to go. I had no idea what it was this morning. <laughs> had no idea. Uh, I woke up, and it could have been any other day of the week for all I knew. And uh, thankfully, Isaac is, uh, he's our details child, and he's like, Dad, we're going to church today. That's right, we're going to church today. Uh, thanks, son, because I... I you all be sitting there and like, where is he? Uh, so uh, so it, we're, we're doing right. We're doing okay, I guess is a great way to, to describe it. Uh, Mary Lane's mom and dad are in town. They got here uh, Friday evening, and, and we're doing good. We're doing well. So uh, hanging in there and uh, surviving. So pray that I don't get voted off this week. Um, and, uh, but we're doing um, really, really well. So thank you for your, your prayers, uh, the cards, the, the texts, the phone calls uh, that so many of you have given us. Uh, we thank you for that. If you've got uh, your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 15 this morning. We're going to continue on. Uh, Marilyn even asked me this morning, she's like, do you think you'll be able to preach this morning? I'm like, well, yeah. Uh, I can't guarantee what I'll say uh, this morning, just in my sleep-deprived mental state right now, but uh, I think this will be a blessing to us as we continue to, to walk through what we, we believe. We've talked that we started out with the, the, the Trinity. We talked about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that we believe and worship one God, but three persons, and they're all equally God. Then two weeks ago, Ken Simpson walked us through Scripture, that we believe that we as Christians believe that scripture is infallible and errant and inspired and he talked about the importance of God's word in our lives especially personally what Ken said two weeks ago has still echoed in my mind when Ken said you cannot grow spiritually without the study and the reading of scripture you can't I think many of us walk through this idea and have this idea, I've been guilty of this in my own personal walk with God, that thinking Sunday morning is enough. That if I come on Sunday mornings and hear a pastor speak for 30 minutes, that that is good enough. Folks, if you do that, if you approach your spiritual walk with God in that way, you will starve yourself out spiritually. 
You'll, you'll do it. It's like saying, well, I'll eat one meal a week. You are going to waste away to nothing. You cannot do that. So don't waste away spiritually. Study God's Word. You might be saying, Adam, I'm not really sure how to go about reading Scripture. Well, then come to Ken's and I's State Line Institute. We're going to talk about that. We're going to walk through that for about eight to ten weeks. How do I read the Bible for ourselves? I think our church, I think the churches, in many churches, there's people, they want to read the Bible. They're very well-meaning. They want to. They just don't know how to. So we're going to walk through that on Wednesday night, starting September 6th. Uh, not, not that the other small groups aren't good, um, but there's another plug for ours. Uh, but we, want, we need to be digesting that. And then last week, we talked about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, God in the flesh, substituted himself for us on the cross. It should have been us bearing the wrath and the shame upon the cross. We talked about that right now there are liberal theologians where that idea of the substitutionary atonement is under attack because that's the idea, well, that makes God mean. That, God, that makes God wrathful. But we understand that the act of Jesus dying on the cross, that was not divine child abuse. That was God taking on the pain of the cross for us, the separation of sin for us. Because remember, God the Son goes back to the Trinity. God the Son is equally God, just as equally as God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. So that was God substituting himself. That was an act of love, not an act of violence. Well, now today, this would be very closely connected to what we talked about last Sunday. We're going to talk about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment that you are really into boating and really into sailing. And so you decided to sail across the Atlantic Ocean from the east coast of the United States all the way across to England. You're going to go all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, okay? How many of you would be interested in doing that? Not me, okay? Okay, Peggy, have your fun. Not me, okay? Not me. Why? Because drown. I think we all need to have a healthy phobia of water. But now I want you to imagine that you're going on this boat and all of a sudden you hit this gigantic storm, a hurricane, and you that boat is just being tossed to and fro. I've watched on the Weather Channel some of those documentaries of people on these boats that get stranded out there in the National Guard. They come in with helicopters and these, there's these huge waves crashing down on these people. And if it's not for the National Guard, those people are going to what? They're going to drown. They're going to go down with the ship. But I want to imagine now, I know this is really dark, I want you to imagine that you're out there on this boat and there's these huge, massive 20 to 25 foot waves crashing down all around you. The boat's going down and you're in the water and you're clinging to a life jacket. That's some dire straits, wouldn't it? Now, how tight would you be holding on to that life jacket? I think if you're honest, you'd probably say pretty tight. Folks, these things that we're talking about, Scripture, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, the triune nature of God, the resurrection of Christ, especially the resurrection of Christ that we're going to talk about, that is a thing that we have to cling to. We have to hold on to it. Because, folks, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no faith. If you are here this morning and do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I mean this with all, with all, the, 
with all the genuineness and niceness in all my heart, you are wasting your time. Now, maybe you're here and like, I don't really believe the resurrection, but I'm curious about Christianity. Okay, we can be that. But if you are just a staunch, don't believe in the resurrection, don't believe it can happen, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are people that should have people, other people should have pity for. Because without the resurrection, this is meaningless. If you've gone to church your whole life and you don't believe in the resurrection, you're wasting your time. Because this is the life jacket that we've been thrown to. Because as we talked about the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the death of Christ last week, there's been a lot of religious leaders that have died. Thousands of them through human history that have died. And when they've died, their religion sometimes dies with them. But the leader of our religion called Christianity is alive. He died, but now is alive. And without it, it's a waste. It's a complete waste. So, this morning, you, we're all in three, of, in three places. Okay, one, you're here this morning. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You've understood the gospel, the work of Christ in your life. You're a believer. You have a relationship with God. And you have your eternity in heaven secured. Let this be an encouragement to you this morning. Let this call you to worship. Let this cause you to even be more confident in the work of Christ. It could be here this morning that you've grown up in church, you're familiar with this story, but you've never fully understood it. Let me encourage you, understand that this has impact on your life today. And then it could be this morning, that, so we could have someone here, and you think, oh, Adam, that's, this is not possible. It's very possible that we could have someone here that's skeptical about Jesus. Skeptical about if he was really resurrected, or we could easily believe that this is just a story, a fairy tale, like a sci-fi movie, or we could even be skeptical about Christianity in general. But can I tell you something? Out of all the world religions, there's something unique about Christianity. Because in the decades before Jesus was born, and the decades after his death, there were many messianic movements in Israel. Did you know that? There were tons of messianic movements. In the centuries before Jesus came, the centuries after, many people said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. And every time during that leader of the messianic movement, when that person was claiming to be the Messiah, they would either be killed by assassination or execution. And when that leader of the Messianic movement was killed, so would that movement would die with them. But what has historically set Christianity apart is that after Jesus died, Christianity did not die out. You remember when we walked through uh, after Easter and into the summer of the book of Acts and we saw how the gospel just exploded worldwide? Christianity, Christianity didn't die out. So as historians, we have to ask the question, what was it that separated Christianity from all these other messianic movements? Well, Christianity didn't die. It exploded. And almost 300 years after Christ died, that's not very much time. In our minds, that 300 years is a long time. But when you look at the span of world history, that's not very long. Over 300 years after the death of Christ, Christianity spread throughout the entire Roman Empire 
And now today, right now, one-third of our world, our globe, claims to be Christian. So that's a big messianic movement. So what, what was different about that? Like We have to ask ourselves, what's the, what's the difference between this messianic movement and all other messianic movements throughout history? It's because what happened was the leader of this movement, after he was killed, he came back to life. And that was very different. So let's see what happened to this leader, Jesus, of this messianic movement, after his death, and it changed everything. It's what sets Christianity apart. So turn to Mark chapter 15 and look at verses 42 through 47. So I want to show you first historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now here's, here's what kind of has happened in our culture in the last few decades. Christians, those of us who believe in Christianity, we have the, 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 the burden of proof has been placed upon us to prove the resurrection. Okay? When I've studied apologetics in seminary, the apologetics is the art of arguing for your faith. When I've walked through apologetics and Christianity and even in college, it was always approached in a way of we as Christians, we're on the defense. We're playing defense. We have to defend our faith, right? But when we look at the resurrection and the historical evidence of it, I firmly believe, no, we are only on the offense. That's what I love about Christianity. Christianity is on the offense. We're not on the defense. We don't have to cower down and hide because there is historical evidence for what we believe. So we're going to see that. We're going to start first with the historical evidence. Now, when we start with the historical evidence, I want us to be careful. Because even if you believe in the historical evidence of Jesus Christ and the historical evidence of his resurrection, that does not make you a believer. That does not make you a Christian. Because Jesus even told his disciples, he said, even the demons believe who I am, and they shudder. So even the demons know who Jesus is. Even Satan knows who Jesus, uh, know who Jesus is. And so they see that, they know who he is, and yet they still do not believe. So there is, and this is the most scary thing to me about being a pastor, is there could be people that have gone to church their whole life and believe in the historic resurrection of Jesus Christ, and yet they are just as rotten and as rotten and on the inside as any other pagan. So a historical belief in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection, that is not good enough for salvation. Because we have historical belief all the time. We believe, historically, that George Washington existed. Now none of us in this room, probably not, ever saw George Washington physically. Okay, I know some of you think you're really old, but you're not that old. Okay, there's no one here that saw George Washington. So we have a historic belief about George Washington. That's easy. Historical belief is easy. But what belief in Jesus Christ leads to, it leads to repentance. Repentance is a spiritual about face, a spiritual 180, to where that belief, it changes who you and I are. So we're going to walk through here in just a moment historic evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But don't let that, don't let my goal this morning is not to convince you historically of that, the resurrection of Christ. That's not going to provide a relationship with God with you. You could easily walk out of here and say, oh, yeah, I historically believe that Jesus was resurrected. My hope is that then you will see the historic evidence and then see the spiritual impact 
of the resurrection. Okay, so let's start there. Let's look at Mark chapter 15, verse 42 through 47. It says this, And when the evening had come, since it was the day of, the, of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he, he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that, he had, that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So, who was Pilate? If you understand the, uh, know the narrative of the death of Christ, you understand who Pilate was. Pilate was the Roman prefect or governor. He was the governor of the region of Judea under the emperor Tiberius. Okay, That's how they divided up the line of power, the, the, um, the chart of, of leadership in the Roman Empire. You had the emperor and you had governors under the emperor who helped oversee the regions. That's who Pilate was. Well, he had overseen the trial of Jesus. He had turned over his execution, the crucifixion, over to the Jewish religious leaders. And a man named Joseph of Arimathea, he was the member of the religious council of Israel. A very religious man. He asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Well, Pilate was a little surprised to hear that Jesus was dead. Because usually a crucifixion could last for days. It was a terrible way to die. Hor horrific. Horrible. Horrible way to die. And many times, crucifixion would last for days before the victim would die. And we see that account in John 19. Write that down. John 19, 31 through 37. The Jewish people did not want Jesus and the two criminals that were crucified with him to be on the cross during the Sabbath. They didn't want that. So they went to break the legs of them that that would speed up the dying process. Essentially, the dying process of crucifixion, not to be grotesque, but it was a death by suffocation. So they would break the victim's legs so they would end up just hanging there and suffocating. So they went to go break the legs, and when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So a soldier, a Roman soldier, you know the story, pierced him in the side with a spear to confirm that he was dead. So Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead, and he met with the Roman centurion who had overseen the execution by crucifixion. What a job, right? As a Roman centurion, your job would have been to oversee executions. And the Romans were really good at it. They were a brutal people. So he would have overseen the execution of Jesus, and so Pilate checks with this Roman centurion, and the Roman centurion confirms that Jesus was dead. And then Pilate allowed Joseph of Arimathea to have the body. So we see first here in Mark 15 that Jesus' death was confirmed by the Roman government. The Roman government, the most powerful government in the world at this time, confirmed that Jesus was really dead. Now there's some ideas out there you could read up on all about it. There was ideas and theories out there that maybe Jesus was on the cross but didn't really die. People who believe in the Muslim religion, they believe that it was merely a man that looked like Jesus who was crucified. 
But there's a hole in that logic because Muhammad, six centuries after the crucifixion, came up with that theory. So it doesn't hold up. Others believe that it was Jesus there on the cross, but he didn't actually die. There's that theory out there that he was on the cross, he didn't really die, he was just really, really hurt, he then passed out from the pain and the physical exhaustion of being beaten, of being crucified, he went unconscious, and people thought he was dead. Okay, if you were to believe that, then you need to assume that Jesus went through six trials, no sleep, a brutal scourging and beating, a crown of thorns thrust into his head, nails driven into his hands and feet, and after hanging on the cross for a few hours, had a spear thrust into his side, and then he fainted and was wrapped in grave, in grave clothes. And then he was put in a tomb with a huge stone in front of it. He gained consciousness. He was able to escape past trained Roman soldiers and then went on his way. Folks, if you believe that Jesus just passed out on the cross, there's a lot of assumptions there that you have to go through. The reality is this. Jesus was dead, and it was certified by the Roman government. And this Roman centurion, he was putting his reputation on, on the stake. And I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time coming up with words right now because uh, lack of sleep. But he was, he was staking his reputation, there it is, staking his reputation on the death of Jesus Christ. He was certifying that. So he, and so he was saying, yeah, he's dead. He was an expert in execution. So then Joseph of Arimathea is named here in Mark 15 as a witness. And he actually, uh, they hand over his body to him and he wraps it in grave clothes. So the Roman government confirms that Jesus is dead. And then we also see here that there was two women... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother uh, of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So we have two women that were eyewitnesses to the body of Jesus. Now during this time, it's amazing that Mark mentions this in his gospel, because during this time, women couldn't even be witnesses in court of law. So for Mark to mention that these two ladies were witnesses to the dead body of Christ, it's pretty incre incredible and brings a lot of credibility to the reality of the resurrection. So we have eyewitness accounts. We have Roman, the Roman government confirms the death of Jesus Christ. And then we go down into verse 16, or chapter 16. Let's read that, verses 1 through 7. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, and when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Okay, there's, the, there's a sign, that massive stone. If Jesus had just passed out, there's no way he physically could have moved that stone. The stone, who's going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. So Jesus has been resurrected. Now, we know the narrative. We know the story. We can understand the historical evidence of the resurrection, but that's not the most important part. 
the most important part of the resurrection is the spiritual impact that it has on your life and mine. So let's talk about that. There's four points that I want us to look at. Okay, first, the resurrection guarantees our regeneration. You have your notes there? They're fill-in-the-blank notes. So the resurrection guarantees our regeneration. Turn to 1 Peter 1.3 with me. 1 Peter 1.3. It's a little book towards the back of your Bible. can be a little bit tricky to find, but look there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter's opening up his letter, and what does Peter say? He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be, circle these next two words, what? Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the resurrection guarantees, we're going to see four guarantees that the resurrection brings to us spiritually. spiritually. The resurrection guarantees our regeneration. All right, I want you to imagine this for just a moment. Someone's come into the emergency room, they've had a heart attack, and they have flatlined, okay? I know we have some nurses in our church. They have flatlined. They're dead, right? So what do they do to try to revive them? They get the electric paddles out, they put them on their chest, and that electric shock brings the heart, shocks it back to life. That's regeneration. Okay, another practical example of this, if your car battery dies, what do we do? Hook it up to another car battery, you connect it, and it regenerates that battery. The resurrection provides regeneration. It shocks our dead spiritual state back to life. How does that happen? What is the means of that? The resurrection. Now there's a beautiful picture here within the resurrection. Jesus Christ was dead on the cross and then he was alive. It was the power of God that brought him back to life. Did you know it is that same power that brought Jesus Christ back from the dead and it is the same power that brings us back to life spiritually. It's regeneration. We're regenerated. We're born again. You remember the passage, John chapter 3, where Jesus was walking with Nicodemus? Nicodemus was asking him these spiritual questions. He had heard Jesus' teaching. And what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You must be what? Born again. You have to be regenerated. You have to have a brand new spiritual start. What is the means of the guarantee of regeneration? It's the resurrection. It's brand new spiritual life. So the resurrection guarantees our regeneration. Number two, the resurrection guarantees our justification. All right, again, just like last week, we're going to be turning uh, to different chapters or to different uh, parts of the Bible. So turn over to Romans chapter 4. The resurrection guarantees our justification. You say, Adam, what does that word mean? We'll talk about it here in just a minute. It's talking about in the previous verses of Romans 4, 25. We don't have, just for the sake of time, we won't read them all. But there's up previously, it talks about the faith that we must have for salvation. And it says in verse 25, talking about Jesus Christ, it says, who was delivered up for our trespasses. We talked about that substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What does justification mean? This is a legal term. Once you imagine a courtroom, 
and you and I are on trial, and there is a prosecution that is trying to prove our guilt, who's that, per, uh, that prosecution? That is Satan, the evil one. And he is telling God the Father, they are guilty. And you know what? He's right. They are guilty. They are sinful. They are liars. They are rebellious towards you. They are guilty, deserving of death. But we have a defense attorney. And he walks in, and his name is Jesus. And he walks in and he says, no, they are not guilty. And then the question arises, well, how so? And he shows them his hands, his feet, his crucifixion. It talks about his resurrection. And you can read all this in Hebrews. And it says that the God the Father looks at the sacrifice of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and he says, they are justified. What does that mean? Not guilty. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ's done. And through the lens and through the spectrum of the blood of Christ, we are justified. We are not guilty. Though we should be guilty, we are not guilty. That legal term is justification. You hear that word justice there. It's justified. Our resurrection is guaranteed. Uh, the resurrection guarantees our justification. Hold on to that. Without the resurrection, your justification is not guaranteed. The resurrection guarantees that. Number three, the resurrection guarantees that we will receive perfect resurrection bodies as well. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. It says, And God raised the Lord, that's Jesus, and God raised the Lord and will also raise you up by his power. Did you know that when we get to heaven, this is an amazing thing. If you're a believer this morning and when you get to heaven, you will receive a perfect resurrection body. Now, a lot of people say, what's that going to look like? What, is that? what are our capabilities going to be? I don't know. Can't wait to find out. But it's going to be a body that is not going to break down. It's not going to age, and it will last for all eternity. There's hope in that. There's hope in that. That the resurrection guarantees that we will receive resurrection bodies as well. And then finally, number four, the resurrection guarantees our victory over sin. How many of you, this is a test, confession's good for the soul. How many of us this week sinned? Come on. Come on, you're sinning right now if you're not raising your hand. All right, we've all sinned this week. Isn't it frustrating? Oh my goodness, it is so frustrating. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans. The Apostle Paul said, all the things I'm supposed to do, I don't do. The things I should do, I don't do. And then what he does is he describe himself, oh, wretched man that I am. You can sense that spirit spiritual frustration the apostle paul had in romans he's frustrated how many of you've ever been there i was there this week how many of you've ever been spiritually frustrated you keep finding yourself doing the thing the same thing that you shouldn't be doing you're not doing the things you should do and you just want to give up it's frustrating you feel like you're losing 
Well, folks, there will be a day when we, if you are a believer, you will experience victory over sin. Sin will no longer have its grasp on you. The resurrection guarantees that because when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, what is death the result of? It's a result of sin. That's why every one of our ancestors, at some point, their bodies broke down and died. That's the part of the curse of sin. So Jesus experienced that. He died, but then was resurrected. So that proved that he had victory over death. He had victory over sin. And he provides that for us in that when we die, we will experience a spiritual resurrection. And that spiritual resurrected soul and body of ours will have victory over sin. Last passage to look up, Romans 6.10. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 6 and verse 10 It says, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion, or that word dominion means power or rule. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Folks, did you know you don't have to sin? Now, I know that there's days where you and I feel like we can't help it. We're sin, we get angry, we get bitter, we gossip, we lie, we lust, we do all these things that we should not do, and it can be discouraging. Be encouraged by the resurrection, that one day you and I will have victory over sin. We will sin no longer. So we see that the resurrection, yes, we see the historic evidence of it, That's really, really important. But the resurrection guarantees our regeneration. and guarantees our justification. It guarantees that we will receive a perfect resurrection body. And it guarantees our victory over sin. It's crucial. And so when you go through, and I hate this phrase, but I'll use it for the lack of a better term. When you go through the storms of life, when you are tempted to sin, when you are discouraged spiritually, when you wonder if God loves you, when you go through those times of difficulty in lives, cling to the resurrection of Christ like you would a life jacket. Hold to it. It is our hope. Because without the resurrection, there is no hope for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Christ. We thank you that, Jesus, we thank you that you did not stay dead, but that you were resurrected. That we now, we worship and we follow a risen Messiah. And God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has never believed in your death and resurrection, that you would use it in their lives to make them spiritually alive. Open their eyes, God, to the gospel. 
then God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning, a believer, that is discouraged, that is frustrated spiritually, God, use the resurrection and the reality of it to impact us spiritually. Help us to hold on to that truth, that doctrine of the, resurre- or the resurrection as if our life, and it does, our eternal life depends on it. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for substituting yourself on the cross for our sin and then coming back to life to give us victory over our sin. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to take just a moment.